A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 219 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of our multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman, and with me like the constant warfare between the Imperial and the Rebel sides, the EU guru himself, the Count of our two. Continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Damn! <laughs> that was a bit of a butler there. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Uh, been a while since we've had an episode, it seems like. Uh, so, Mark, what you been up to? Man, it has been a lot. I've been doing a lot of studio work. Uh, I mean, when I'm not doing scouting things and dancing things for my two daughters and stuff, all the family stuff. Uh, I've been working on the studio. I've been uh, rearranging shelves, been painting things. I've been sharing the photos and stuff like that on our Facebook, on my Facebook, my Twitter and stuff. But yeah, that's kind of been like the main focus of my uh, fandom right lately has been just working on the studio and getting things ready for when we were uh, ready to jump back in. Nice. We've uh, we've been doing stuff around the house here a little bit also. Anytime I'm teaching summer school or we get to the end of a semester where I had extra students, which means a little bit of extra pay, it's always, okay, what do we need to buy for the house? So we've been, you know, hanging stuff up on the walls, uh, finally got a leaf blower and that kind of thing. I'd love to say that, you know, I did some travel to go on a book tour for a saga on home video, but who am I yeah. kidding? I. I hit the road and just drove up to visit family for a weekend, mainly to, to get up there before I, I, I lost the opportunity or, uh, or before circumstances made it so it would be difficult to get up there. My dad, a veterinarian, was attacked by one of the dogs he was treating and lost a piece of his nose. Whoa. So he's in the process of getting ready to have a plastic surgery done to reconstruct that piece of his nose. And I thought I was going up there right before his surgery um, to help kind of you know, lend some moral support and get you know whatever I could helped out with around the house, but they wound up pushing it back. So I visited, but didn't get a chance to really help much with that. Uh, and then came back, and our other big thing around the house, because, uh, you know, you know, I like to say that I'm the practical guy when it comes to household stuff. Yep, we got a leaf blower. <laughs> yep, we got ourselves a hedge trimmer and a chainsaw. But, you know, the biggest thing recently was we upgraded an Xbox One to an Xbox One S that can play 4K Blu-rays and finally upgraded our TV to a 4K 49-inch TV which will probably be the last one we have for a long time because it's the biggest that'll fit on our dresser <laughs> and we don't want to mount it on the wall. So uh, so it's kind of a, uh, yay, what can we watch? And of course, there's no Star Wars material in 4K yet, so it's sort of a, come on, Disney, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but I hear, I hear that Guardians of the Galaxy 2, the rumor is that that may be Disney's first 4K film release. Uh, on home videos, so maybe if they do it for Marvel, they're also doing it for Star Wars for uh, the Last Jedi. Maybe here's hoping. So that's not um, one of those. Yeah, I mean, it just, that's not one of those things where they have to go back in and and like refilm certain things. Like that's just like a filter. Like how does that work? Uh, 
it should be just a question of uh, what the source material was before it wound up being pared down to the resolution that's then used for home video. Um, so like the resolution you would see in the really high-end movie theaters is going to actually be a higher resolution than what you get on, say, a Blu-ray, whereas the 4K is the next step um, upward from Blu-ray. Think of it kind of like, um, to me at least, um, just in terms of my personal experience with this. You know how there was the jump from VHS to DVD? Yeah. And you could really tell a difference. And there's a jump from DVD to Blu-ray, and you could tell a difference, but not quite as much. It's kind of the same thing here. You can tell a difference between 4K and a Blu-ray that's playing on an upscaler that upscales it for a 4K TV. You can tell a little bit of a difference, mm. but not hugely so. It's more sort of a, you know, if you have something that plays 4K discs, then you have something probably that's upscaling your Blu-ray. So you can't really do a side-by-side -side comparison unless you're actually using different setups, one 4K, one not to be able to tell. Mm. But I found that, you know, it's... It's a nice setup. I'm digging the bigger TV. I don't have to squint with my crap vision when I'm playing <laughs> some video games. Um, so, and that's always good. That's always a plus. When I don't have to look like an old man hunched over a PlayStation controller, that is a good thing. Um, but I spent quite a bit of time in the recent past, as did you, uh, squinting like old men, or in your case, a Viking, perhaps, with a haircut, <laughs> over something other than a controller, an actual, honest-to-God paper book. Yes, they still make those. What is it that we're going to be talking about that was in our hot little hands recently? That's right. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we explore Beth Revis's young adult novel, Rebel Rising. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. When Jyn Erso was eight years old, her mother is murdered and her father taken from her to serve the Empire. But despite the loss of her parents, she is not completely alone. Saw Guerrera, a man willing to go to any extremes necessary to resist Imperial tyranny, takes her in as his own daughter and gives her not only a home, but all the abilities and resources she needs to become a rebel. Jin dedicates herself to the cause and the man, but fighting alongside Saw and his people brings with it danger and the question of just how far Jin is willing to go as one of Saw's soldiers. When she faces one of the most unthinkable betrayals that shatters her world, Jin will have to pull the pieces of herself back together and figure out what she truly believes in and whom she can really trust. This is definitely another of those that I would say is one that adds to your film experience. I would say that I mean, if you take, for, and we talk about the Stover effect, if you take something like the Matthew Stover novelization of Revenge of the Sith, and then you watch Revenge of the Sith, it gives you more depth to what you're seeing, hence me calling it the Stover effect oh so long ago, because you have all these motivations for the characters and background aspects of the characters that you don't have when you're just watching the movie itself. And in essence, that's kind of what they did recently with Catalyst. And they tried to give us the background there of Galen Erso and his wife and Krennic and, and a little bit of Jin to give us a reason to sort of feel for the Galen character, know where he came from, know how the Death Star project had expanded and so on and so on. And in a lot of ways, that was sort of a character study without a lot of action, so it felt kind of meh, something you couldn't really read and enjoy necessarily as a standalone book for most people, but which would heighten 
your enjoyment of Rogue One and be a great one for people who loved Rogue One. That's kind of what this does, except it's a little more action-packed, so it stands alone a little bit better than something like a Catalyst would. And it has a big Stover effect in the sense that, especially with the fact that there's a novelization, in fact, there's two novelizations of Rogue One. There's the adult one and the young adult one. And they do things with the Jin character that give us a little bit of insight. Like, you know, my father's a bastard and all these different thoughts in her head. But even then, we don't get much in the way of background to why she thinks the way she does. Oh, her father supposedly works for the Empire now on purpose and he didn't come back for her. He sent her away. She wishes he was dead or thinks it's easier to think that he's dead. Blah, blah, blah. And she fought with Saw at one point. So, golly, she must admire the rebels eventually and decide to join their side. Her willingness to essentially become a full-blooded member of the Rebel Alliance in the film, to stake her life on something that, you know, earlier in the film she said, you know, shouldn't bother her if she doesn't look up, seemed like somewhat of a fast transition for some. This book really does a good job of putting that to rest because it gives us the background on her, her relationship with Saw, her time as a rebel with Saw, events that are hinted at in the novelization and hinted at in things like the visual guide uh, for Rogue One, really sort of fleshes all that out and gives us enough new insight into the character to really see her in a different light when we see Rogue One and understand the depth of what she's going through and why she makes the decisions that she does within the film. I absolutely feel like Rebel Rising and Catalyst, but more Rebel Rising than Catalyst if you gotta pick one or the other, really enhanced my experience of watching Rogue One through that Stover effect. That said, this is also in the vein of Catalyst and in the vein of something like a Tarkin in that it does do a lot of time jumping. It starts during the beginning segment of Rogue One for the first about five chapters or so. It jumps to seven years before A New Hope and Rogue One for chapters 6 through 13, though it's kind of divided into two different segments with a small time jump in between. Then it jumps to five years before Rogue One, basically um, chapters 14 to 23, then another segment of 24 to 29, then the rest of 29 through 31, jumps to four years before for 32 to 34, then 35 to 43, and then into basically the beginning of the year prior to uh, Rogue One for 44 to 46, and it has these sort of bookmark chapters called month one, month two, etc., etc., that detail her time in prison that give us monthly jumps upward until we finally wind up crossing over with the scenes where we see her rescued in Rogue One and finally joining the Rebel cause and saying yes to helping find her father. So it's very much in that same vein. Don't expect this to be one self-contained story, but because it's the development of this character and events in one time period affect her in others, it does have that through line that needs to be there to make it enjoyable as a whole. Um, So for me, I would say that this is a, it's one of my favorite books that we've seen so far of the new canon. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's in like the top maybe three. I don't think it's quite there, but it's probably up there. If I actually started listing them out, it's probably within about my top five, certainly my top 10. Uh, And as far as books from Disney Lucasfilm Press, as opposed to being books from Del Rey, um, the only one I believe from them that surpasses it at this point is Lost Stars. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a really, really well done book. That said, there are some things that had me scratching my head and some interesting points of uh, contention perhaps to talk about as well. But by and large, I would say if you liked Rogue One, you absolutely should be checking out Rogue uh, Rogue Rising, whatever it is. Rebel Rising. Yes, you definitely should check out Rebel Rising. You shouldn't necessarily know what the name of it is, but definitely check it out. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> what I find funny is it definitely seems like the new canon books 
maybe not so much the comics, but the books are really going out of their way to give us backstory. You know, like we got the Tarkin, we got the Ahsoka, we've got Dark Disciple, which is basically Asajj Ventress and Quinlan Voss's story. You've got the Sith Lords, it's Palpatine and Vader. Uh, you know, you've got Thrawn. I mean, each one of these books are kind of following a character. And I love the fact that the way they do this gives you the breadth of Jin's life. Like, I'm not too keen on the the way they start. Like, the time jumps, you know, those little chapters and stuff, it's kind of interesting because, like, it starts out, she's only got, like, one charge, and then as the months progress, she gets more charges added to it, so that was kind of cool. But in the overall linearness of the story, I kind of wish those flashback stuff would have just been saved and kept to at the end. If, if they would have gone completely linear with the story. I mean, they, they mostly do, but those little in prison parts kind of break up the story. And I found that I, I just, I couldn't track those parts so well. Like I have listened to this book about five times now. And when those parts came, it would just, it would distract me. It was, I, I was like, okay, what was going on again with her? Wh- which roommate or which prison mate did she have at this moment? And I'd forget about what was going on with the boyfriend and, and where she's currently at in the story. And then when we get to the end of the book, they continue to that point and they're giving you the stuff with her in prison anyway. So I was kind of like, why not just save that? Tell the whole story in a linear fashion from her being young to the end. And I think really that's like my only big complaint with the book was that. I, I like the way that we get into Jen's head. One of the things that I found very interesting was the fact that she hated the rebels just as much as she hated the Empire. Which, when you think about it, you know, I mean... The Empire kills her mom and the rebels kill her dad, in a sense, if you know, when you're watching the film. And yet her disdain for both sides weighs almost evenly. So, like, I kind of wished, based off of what I read in this book, that we'd have got a little bit more of her conflict like that coming across in the actual movie. Because it did seem like she was just, like, ready to join up. Like, oh, yeah, let's do this. You know, you're rebels. Let's, I rebel. Uh, but really, I mean, like the conflict there of, of whether or not she should be, you know, fighting against the rebels or fighting for the rebels or she should be working for the empire or against the empire and the way that plays out in the story. I mean, by the time you find out what lands her in prison, that was a pretty damn deep moment. Like I, like there's a moment where she's just like, I, I, I could have, I could have done this for something, but instead I, I did this for nothing. And when you get that realization from her point of view, there is a total moment of despair. And you get that sense of despair that seems to hang over Jin's character all throughout the story. And yet, there is enough of her being a fighter that it doesn't weigh her down. Like, you, you don't have any pity party moments and things like that. Like, like Nathan had mentioned the part where she goes, well, I guess my dad's a bastard. And I, I like the way that that progresses because it progresses more from Saw Gerrera's point of view. You know, Saw's kind of like trying to find out what's going on with her dad and he kind of like at one point's like, well, your dad sided with the bad guys. And the way that that impacts her and the way they get into her head, I really enjoyed that aspect of this book. And I also like that the way they do their little time jumps, there's a moment when I think she's about almost 18 or, or the year between 16 and 18 where it all of a sudden jumps. She's like in like the five point system or the five brothers system. I can't remember what the name of it is off the top of my head, but she had been there for a while and had been trying to get out. And I thought it was kind of cool because like here, you've got this book that covers her whole life. And yet they've left just enough small gaps that if they wanted to come back and tell more stories of an adult gen or a teenage gen or a young adolescent gen, there are gaps that they could do it. They didn't completely close themselves off. So I thought that was really cool. I like the references to the rebels characters they would talk about them as a different cell and they would talk about them as a squadron which i thought was interesting because it's it seems to be only Hera's cell that that 
is Phoenix Squadron, and there are a lot more than just one squadron. So I, I, it was pretty clear that that's who they were talking about. And there was a lot of cool character interactions throughout this that, that I really enjoyed. I, I, I kind of almost wish that we would have got more of the background characters, the other rebels and stuff that we're working for saw. There are a few of the characters that kind of really rise to prominent positions and stuff. And I kind of almost wanted a little bit more, but overall I really don't have any complaints. I thought this was a really fun book. And for a young adult book, like right now, the young adult books are really good. Like I, I dare even call them young adults. I mean, these really feel like they're full-on adult books. There doesn't feel like any difference between this book and Thrawn. Uh, you know, and, and that, to me, like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Like, I always thought young adult books should be like a stage between, and these don't feel like a step between. These feel like full-on adult books. Oh, you already stepped in it now, because that's a couple of things that I wanted to bring up. So... <laughs> Uh, I think it's maybe time to move into spoilers. That's right. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. So consider that your spoiler warning beyonders and sentience of all ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. All right, so this is something that, that came up in what Mark was just saying. I was going to hold it for later on in the show, but because he already mentioned it, I am curious about that dividing line. Like, it seems as though these days, what defines something as a young adult book versus a novel aimed at adults isn't even the target audience really anymore for the story itself. For instance, you know, with Star Wars books, you know that adults are going to be reading young adult stuff. Heck, adults are going to be reading, you know, kids stuff like Adventures in Wild Space in some cases. So maybe that sort of blurs the age lines, but it seems like it's less about the target audience and more about just who's the publisher, right? So for the most part, you're seeing books from Disney Lucasfilm Press being marketed as younger reader or young adult books, depending on which books we're looking at, like Guardians of the Wills, perhaps. And then you've got something, you know, that's aimed at adults, in theory, that's coming from Del Rey um, that fits that more traditional adult novel type publication size of book and typeface and all that kind of stuff but it seems like it's it, the storytelling itself doesn't really change all that much and if it does change it's changing in the opposite direction of what i would expect and perhaps this is because i'm an old fuddy-duddy i am three years from hitting 40 oh my god and maybe it's because for me you know the young adult books of my childhood were stuff that were mystery and interesting intrigue type books, whereas we've gone through the generation, of course, where the young adult books were Twilight. And Twilight certainly pushes some boundaries when it comes to what we would have necessarily expected in young adult. So maybe the fact that young adults, theoretically teenagers, are hormone-driven individuals and have a lot of complex psychological issues going on during their development, maybe those play a role in this idea that sometimes adult themes get addressed more in the young adult books than in the adult books. And there's two that really jump out at me in this book. And I, as someone who teaches, I have one perspective on it, but I don't have any kids. Mark has kids of three different ages, mm -hmm. which might hopefully give us maybe some insight into what, uh, what a parent thinks on this. But here's the two. Here's the two. One is found on page 289. And I'm particularly reminded of this uh, around 289 because of all the controversy about 13 Reasons Why. 
this uh, ah. Netflix series about basically suicide and the rationale that led to it and so on. And we have these interludes, month-whatever, 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 in which we see Jin in prison. And we wind up meeting and spending a little bit of time with her cellmate, uh, Zorada. And she and Zorada are basically on this, this work detail where they're using laser picks on this wall, and it's really tedious, crappy work. But they've basically been beaten down to the point where, at least for Zorhada, just there's no hope left. All the hope is gone. It's a bleak, dreary existence. Why even live? And we actually see a suicide in the book. She's stopped working. The stormtroopers tell, you know, prisoner to work now. And even Jin yells to her, and she says, what's the point? And Jin's gut response coming to her immediately and slipping out of her mouth before she could bite back the words, but she recognizes it as the truest thing she has ever spoken is, there is no point. And in her mind, she keeps thinking, lie to her. Pretend that there's hope. Tell her there's still hope, to the point where finally when they say, get to work again, says, there was a sad little smile on Zarada's face. No, she said simply, and she raised her laser pick to her own eye and depressed the trigger. For one brief moment, red light filled the Lunnix's skull, turning her other yellow eye orange. Then there was no more light, but there was much more red. Her blood, Zarada's blood, splattered across the canyon wall behind her, smearing in her white fur as she slumped deeper into the canyon, her lifeless body wedging between the narrow stones. And then Jin is sent to go get her gear off of her corpse. I can't remember a time in which a Star Wars novel, adult or otherwise, went that far into not just discussing suicide, but showing it and the depression that got there. In those chapters, there is no hope. And it is bleak. And it, it strikes me that that is something that perhaps prompt conversation with the young adult readers but given the controversy over such things, the recent issue of the, the, was it the girlfriend who like had the suicidal boyfriend or ex-boyfriend or whatever and egged him on to do it and yeah. she got convicted. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, a topic that is kind of a hot potato and they deal with it here, but not in adult Star Wars books. And the same is the case for what we find on page about 260 to 265-ish, which is sex. There have been two Star Wars novels in the new canon Heck, in, in almost all of Star Wars publishing that I can recall that particularly go into sex scenes. Like, you might have an instance of somebody kisses and then, you know, it's like they just turn their, their camera to the fireplace. But rarely is it overtly essentially starting and then they do that. Or, or that you have characters, particularly young characters, saying things that are overtly, hey, baby, come over here and ride this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, ride that Jedi, as, as the Star Wars <laughs> under it guys might recall. Rarely would you have that kind of dialogue being said by a character in Star Wars to then move on. It's always sort of assumed that that's what happened. Uh, no one else was in the room where it happened, so to speak, to, for the <laughs> Hamilton fans. But I found that it's interesting in that the young adult books that are these thicker, in-depth, life story kind of books, Lost Stars and now Rebel Rising, are the two that delve specifically into basically sex scenes. In this case, you have one instance of sort of the uh, a turning away to, uh, for lack of a better term, go to the fireplace. We have basically them kissing. Uh, he kissed her again, harder, and she could taste the longing within him, the feelings he tried to keep in check. And she understood why he'd wanted to take her outside the town and away from their home to say this, to do this. They could be honest out here, under the open sky, in a way they never could with a roof over their heads. They could pretend they belonged to forever just as much as they belonged to each other. And then it, you know, 
she wakes, you know, we, we move to a long time later and she's laying beside him, etc., etc. That's sort of the way that you would expect to see it within a Star Wars story if you're seeing it at all. But then, just a couple pages later, after I guess poor Hatters had a chance to recharge, uh, let's see, talking about the different creatures and whatnot, and then uh, Hatters, like, uh, not really caring about talking about the creature, says, to be fair, uh, and he's kissing her on the cheek and whatnot, I'm much more focused on throwing myself at you. She playfully pushes him aside. If you were so interested, why didn't you say anything sooner? Because if you didn't want me, you could break my heart and potentially my body. She leans closer, about to kiss him. Who's to say I won't do that anyway? Heading towards the S&M vibe. Hatter <laughs> fell back onto the blanket. You can do whatever you want to my body, he said, his hooded eyes gazing up at her. So she did. And no, the so she did was not me adding it. That is how that <laughs> chapter ends. Oh, God. So, and, and this is a perfectly normal thing for the characters. It makes sense within the context of the story. It makes sense within the story of human beings. Absolutely. I just find it interesting that this stuff finds its way, suicide and sex, into Rebel Rising, into Lost Stars, minus the suicide thing, uh, although there's sort of the fake death thing. And it doesn't seem to find its way into the adult novels. And it makes me wonder, is this a matter of, well, they're aiming at that prepubescent or that uh, teenage going through puberty type of audience and they're going for that whole hormonal thing with it and it just fits and adults are going to be more in control of their hormones. So screw it. You don't really, no pun intended, you don't really need those types of scenes <laughs> for adults. Is a suicide thing to start conversations and whatnot? Is it sort of a suicide awareness type of thing they're trying to do? Or is it, you know, they're trying to tap into the fact that so many teens unfortunately wind up considering suicide at some point, but not touching on that for adults, somehow protecting adults from it, but not the teens. Again, that's sort of maybe a provoking conversation. I don't get that difference unless it's just a matter of Del Rey doesn't want to put that in their stuff and Disney Lucasfilm Press is fine with it. And it just so happens that that company dividing line happens to be along age target lines. So we wind up with what looks like an age split in content type when it's really just a publishing house content type. I don't know, but it it fascinates and kind of perplexes me to see that. Mark, you're the parent. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, this is aimed at teenagers. So is Lost Stars. Should this, should this be here? What do you think? My daughter, you know, she was she wanted to read this. This is one that she's interested in grabbing and, and reading. And Taylor is 14, about to turn 15. And, 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 you know, to put this into perspective for people out there, she is now the age of the first girl I slept with. So I'm like, oh, my God, every boy that comes near her, I want to break his arm. But for me, I think the thing that really I found almost troubling was you know you've got this opportunity to get in the character's head and when these huge moments come up there is really nothing there like the sex aspect right like Jin, there should have been thoughts of like i wish i would have had a chance to talk to my mom about this or you know i i don't feel comfortable about this like there's no internal monologue for her whatsoever she just kind of rolls with it and it, it's it's weird for me because like I don't necessarily know if if I want my daughter just reading a story where the character's like, hey, okay, like no thought or consequence into this whatsoever, especially considering this kid, this Jen Urso, was raised without her parents. All she has was Saw. So you know that this isn't a topic that came up, so you would have thought like there would have been something there, some kind of despair about the fact that she had no one to talk to about this, and that she may or may not be ready for this, but she has no one to talk to. So like, I kept feeling like, 
there should have been something like that. She should have had a mentor or someone she could talk to. They did mention that Saw brought in some other characters. I believe it was like Anjan or something like that, uh, where he brought in another lady rebel that would go over all the feminine hygiene products and stuff like that with her, which was along the lines of what I was thinking. You know, I'm like, okay, well, now here she is. She's out there and she's engaging in sex. And yet there's no, well, what have I just done? Like, like, did I make a mistake or no, that felt right there. It was just like, this is a huge moment for a teenage kid. And we just brushed it under the carpet. Like this is, this just happens for everyone. And the, the, the part that puts me on, you know, the on guard part is like, my daughter could just be reading this and coming up with whatever she thinks, you know, I mean, there's, there's nowhere that the author is trying to lead you like, you know, Hey, this was all okay. Or, you know, maybe she should have waited. Like there's, it's just up there for you to make your own opinions on. Now <laughs> I'd be more, when you said that my immediate thought was, you said, you know, she could sort of, sort of imagine whatever fits with it. My immediate thought was that, was that she'd, she'd read. And so she did. And then begins the Google searches. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, and, and then the, there's the whole suicide part, which, you know, when it was going down, I didn't think about the aspect of it actually being suicide. I was just thinking of it a, a death, you know, like, oh, the, another death at the hands of the Imperials, even though it was her. Because, like, even the Stormtroopers, like, oh, right. You know, like, <laughs> that's the first thing he says, right, you go get her, go get her stuff. Like, even he is like, oh, this is no big thing. And I almost feel like, you know, the fact that it is suicide, like, they should have maybe put a little more in there, gave some of Jin's perspective going, you know, like, man, I mean, they got to that moment of where she's like, lie, lie. And when you're listening to the audiobook, the the narrator does a really good job in that moment of you can hear the despair in Jin's internal voice of like, what have I done? But aside from that being added to the, the text, like, there's nothing there of like, oh, she she regretted that decision, like... So I, I I feel like it being a young adult book, like they should be adding some of those things like this is what you would think in a situation like this, you know, like not allowing these teenage kids to come up with their own opinions. Like, you know, now you're like, oh, yeah, you know, everybody dies. It's no big thing. Like, I don't know. To me, as a parent, there it. it I want to stop and talk to my kid about it, because when the 13 reasons why I watched that entire series or season before my daughter watched any episodes, because I want to know exactly what this, you know, because I was hearing everything about it. You got to watch it with your kids. And I'm like, well, I want to know what's coming before I'm watching with my kids. So I'm not playing scramble dad and like, it hey, wasn't cool at all. Was it? Uh, so there's that side of me. That's kind of like, you know, if you're writing things for young adults, you like, wouldn't you want to put in like, you know, the direction you want them to kind of think towards, but then I guess you get too close to brainwashing your kids. So it's it's a rough one, man. It's a weird line, and it's it's weird for me because like my daughter still hasn't read this book, and yet I'm kind of like I want to have her read it so we could talk about that. But yet at the same time, I'm kind of like, well, you take your time. If you don't want to rush into it, we don't have to rush into this conversation. <laughs> there you go. I don't know. I just and and I know I'm sure there are going to be people who are younger listeners in the audience going, we can handle this. Teenagers aren't out of touch. Blah blah blah. You know, teenagers see it all the time. Abs. Yeah, they do for better or worse, just from you coming as a parent and, and my 
background with education, particularly in dealing with students who, you know, are going to be anywhere from about 12 to 18, uh, usually 14 to 18 most of the time. There's a lot of, of aspects of, of development that most of the time teenagers and even young adults don't realize they're still in and the psychological aspects of it. So I would imagine that there will be some teen- teenagers who will read it and have the same perspective an adult might have and be able to read it and be like, huh, and it's just part of the story, and wow, that made me think deeply. But there are others for whom maybe this should be sparking some conversations, perhaps. Okay, so again, I meant for that to be a later part of the episode, not this part, but he he started it by already Yeah, it was all my fault. <laughs> now, getting away from that and getting into sort of more of the, the broader aspects of the story, what I one thing I really liked about this was we got to see formative moments in a lot of different types and in essence, got to see how Jin sort of had to constantly redefine herself. Working with Saw, how she was there to begin with as a kid before he allowed her to be able to work on any actual missions, uh, once she showed her skills, and eventually when she is able to go on the missions, and the effect that it has seeing, for instance, a, a massacre uh, with these, was it, was it Flechette launchers or whatever it was? Yeah, um, yeah. This massacre with these, these weapons that just tear, tear people apart. And then eventually the mission that winds up with her being separated from everyone else, you know, you know, you dumped me, that one, to then to go into her sort of settling into what we might think of as a normal life that she hasn't really known all that much, and sort of becoming part of a family with the Pontas, uh, Hatter, H-A-D-D-E-R, not T-T's, though he was interested in her T-T's, Hatter... <laughs> I don't know where that came from, uh, but had her basically um, sort of being someone who sort of grounds her in a sense, her sort of taking the place of the real Tanith Punta, eventually using that alias, um, the loss she experiences there when they don't make it away and she does, oh, the odd was, job she winds up taking, that was brutal. Uh, getting wrapped up with Imperials, and then eventually winding up in prison. I mean, there's all these different things that happen to her, and it feels like a natural progression, and that each one sort of redefines her. I almost think of... In many cases, the characters and the arcs that we see for them, it's like a natural progression of just cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. And it's sort of a how do they get from point A to point B. With this book in particular, more than most books for Star Wars, I almost feel like we start this book less with a point A and point B for them to get to and more of there's Jin and there's just this block of barely formed clay or wood, and all these events just whittle away at it a little bit more and a little bit more, a facet here, a facet there, so that eventually you get the gin that we know in the film, but without any of those knife strokes previously, thanks to those other events, the shape in the end wouldn't have been able to come from the shape we had at the beginning. Mm-hmm. This, it's a fascinating way of seeing it, because this author, who it's the first time she's writing a Star Wars story, by the way, yeah. this author really did a good job of capturing the transformative nature of these events and how it winds up affecting Jin for for good and ill. And the way that the narration works a lot of times, whatever the normal is for Jin at that point has to struggle against whatever was normal before, mm-hmm. especially, for instance, when she's with the Pontas and she's, you know, extra skittish and she's she's trying to find ways to make herself useful so they'll keep her around when they're like, you don't have to do that. We're going to let you stay, you know. All the, the psychological things that come from, from one situation bearing on another is is really, really well handled. In particular, though, I find the, the parentage thing interesting because... Aside from the fact that she just has all kinds of aliases, thanks mainly to the missions, you know, the Kestrel Dawn one, Tanith Ponta when she's trying to hide, uh, eventually Liana Halleck when she gets arrested and so forth. Aside from the aliases, 
I guess I really hadn't thought too much about the idea that, well, she was off with Saw, and she would have had to have hid her identity from, of course, you know, the Empire and the Allies. And you get that a little bit from the movie, you know, other people were realizing who you were, etc., etc. But I guess I hadn't really thought about how that must have been handled. And the idea that she is treated with, she's spoken of by her first name, but never her last name. And she's essentially treated as the daughter of Saw, almost a war orphan kind of taken in by Saw. But when you actually... Look at the way he addresses other people in relation to her. It's not a, well, I found her and this and this and I adopted her and this and this kind of stuff where there's an elaboration. It's basically, she's my daughter. Shut up. Let it be. Yeah. And it's interesting because you would think that something like that would be would remain kind of an unresolved issue if the depth isn't given to the backstory with it. But that essentially is the backstory and she accepts it to a degree with almost the same fervor that he does. And again, it's, it's an interesting look into the Saw character that really gives you more insight when we finally see him. And he even has a conversation with her about the cost of war, talking about what happened back in the Clone Wars cartoon series with the death of Stila and how he blames himself and so on. Again, fascinating psychological aspects, but I was wondering from the standpoint of how they handled her transformation and how they handled her dealing with, you know, basically being treated as if she's the actual daughter of Saw, not just someone he took in. Um, what did you think? Do you think they played well? Was there anything that didn't quite feel right? Was it as, for me, it was a, it, it fit really, really well, but we don't always agree. Well, it worked. I think my issue was, I was hoping for something more with Saw, because when I see Saw, when I see Saw in the film, <laughs> I, I couldn't help myself. But when I see him the first time, he seems crazy. He doesn't just seem like he's suffering from post-traumatic stress. He feels like he is so paranoid that he's using the Borgolais on himself. <laughs> like, I, I was expecting to find something like that. Like, he was so paranoid that he started using the Borgolais on everybody, you know? And, like, everybody was starting to get messed up in the mind because he was using this all the time because he trusted no one. But they never kind of went there. I mean, they had moments of why his trust would be the way it is where he's like, you've come to kill me? Like... Because we see the other guy, the other rebel, and I, I don't know if it was Rissy or, or there's so many different rebel characters, but the one that ended up turning on him and, and in the end. And I think that that's what added to his paranoia. But I had kind of felt like that paranoia should have been established earlier because with Saw's character, he's a character that I still quite haven't lined up all the things like when did he get the toxic stuff in his lungs and when did that become a problem because that wasn't really addressed in this book at all him being damaged and, and uh, I mean they, they talk about it lightly but they don't talk about specifics like you know when he went to Geonosis he was poisoned on, you know or that so there were aspects of Saw's character that I wish we got more of but it still it worked for the story and it worked from Jin's point of view I mean Saw could have been doing a whole bunch of stuff that Jin was not aware of that we the readers were not aware of but I was kind of hoping for that yeah, I will agree that in the film, he certainly comes off as, how do you put this in Star Wars terms, Hawkbat Poodoo insane <laughs> initially and then much more grounded later. I just chalked it up to paranoia. But yeah, you don't get that cuckoo, cuckoo version of Saw really when it comes to this book, it seems like. But that is one of the things that got me and I hadn't thought to mention it from a chronological standpoint. The the timing of, you know, you know I, w I was 14 or 16 or whatever it was, whenever she gets left behind. Yeah, 16. Uh, 16. And the fact that, oh, well, that was 
prior to seeing him in Rebels. And that in and of itself, not a big deal, because that was all we knew. But now we know that it it looks like what they were trying to do in the sequence in which she was left behind was to give us the sequence in which Saw winds up getting injured enough that he has to go all cybernetic and stuff. He becomes the man that he is in Rogue One. But that can't possibly be the case because he doesn't look like that or have that type of situation going on in Rebels. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering if the intent of the author was to actually try to make that the rationale for why he looks the way he does and why she hasn't seen him looking like that yet. And somehow Rebels was lost in the shuffle? Or if it's just readers like me and you... Uh, uh, perhaps perceiving it as that what the intention was when really he was just supposed to be hurt enough that he had to leave her behind and the injuries that would eventually cause him to be more machine than man in many ways wouldn't come until after we see him in Rebels. But yeah, he, Saw's physical evolution seemed off to me, but I think it's because we haven't got an explanation. I think there's probably a clear explanation one way or the other. We just don't have it because you don't tend to get a lot of... Uh, there is no... Books, comics, and television forum on the official site anymore. Yeah. To get those kinds of answers. Yeah. I like the fact that since I had already read Catalyst and I've read the Rogue One novelization, that they tied into those events. Uh, it was all subtle, you know, like when Jin would go with her mom and things like that. She would remember the time at the planets, like when she went to Ilum and things like that. There was even a reference to, uh, oh, what the heck was his name? I, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name. The, uh, I can't even think of the species name. The guy that was, that basically got Jin's mom. Uh, was smuggling her everywhere. Oh, Hass Obit. Yeah, yeah, yeah he Obit. was referenced. Yeah, wasn't it yeah. Like, isn't it a line where it's like Hass was my friend too, or something like that? Yeah, and, or and I was and, in those meetings too, or something. Yeah, and Hass Hass runs his mouth or something like that. I was like, oh, slick. And there were a lot of little throwaway lines like that, but I think one of the cool parts was when, uh, and I mentioned it before, when Saw was doing the investigation as to what had happened to Galen, and he realized that Galen had sided with the Empire, and the way he brings it to Jin, it's like not only did papa go with the bad guys but papa went with the guy that killed mama and it was like the way that 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 was that moment where jen's like you're right he is a bastard and you're just like oh crap like at that moment like as a father my heart kind of broke for galen because like you know he's made this huge sacrifice and now his daughter hates him like like doesn't even have a clue and they kept playing on the aspect of Jin's mom had said, trust the force and trust. And that was like something that big for me when I watched Rogue One was the fact that the mom had said that. And it was cool because when it's from Jin's point of view, she was almost wondering if her mom had meant trust the force because that's where I'll be. And I thought that was a really cool play up because, you know, the, we know now production wise that her mom was originally going to be a Jedi and then they scrapped that idea. But they've they've made it where her mom is kind of like a, a worshiper of Jedi or, or a fan of the Jedi. And so it's it's worked really well of keeping that aspect of her mom that's really tight with the Jedi. And it's worked in the way that the daughter is able to, you know, look at these things, look at the kyber crystal and see these connections and stuff. And I don't know about you, but the whole fact that she had that kyber crystal, that started to weigh on me. I'm like, come on, really? Like, nobody's going to notice she's got this necklace. Nobody's doing a strip search on this girl. I mean, come on, the Imperials are assholes. Like, somebody's got to be doing some kind of a strip search and got to be noticing this thing. Yeah, the kyber crystal was kind of a giveaway, but she refused to take it off. I mean, I guess she could stick it in her pocket or whatever. Um, but I don't know. There's just, there's something about, you know, wanting to keep something in plain sight. Uh, I know my wife, when she works, because of where she works and what she deals with, with the food prep for the 
patients and and the the patrons at the the hospital can't wear her wedding rings. So no. the closest she can usually do is is wear something around her neck at times, and even then, sometimes that gets in the way while she's working. So she really just can't wear them. So and she gets all kinds of you know she's had people saying I didn't know you were married. Damn, kind of stuff, which I guess <laughs> should be a compliment. But I guess um, just kind of thinking back to what you were just saying, that one. I gotta say, fan of the Jedi, or fans of the Jedi, there you go, there's your title for episode 9. The Jedi can end like Luke wants, and then it's their fans that keep the torch <laughs> alive. But the, the whole idea of the hatred, and, the, and that moment of, you know, this is what your father chose. You know, he's alive, he's on Coruscant, he's not doing anything to try to come to you, he's with Krennic, the man who killed your mother... He has joined the Empire willingly. This is who he is or who he has become. I think that makes it a lot easier for me to accept her change of opinion about her father in the movie. Because she doesn't think very highly of him. You know, doesn't have any good memory of him to a degree. And, you know, you know she, it's easier to think of him as dead, etc., etc. when she's talking with the rebels initially. But eventually, when he, the message gets played, it's that revelation of all the things she thought were true about him turn out not to be true. I've been hating somebody for years who I shouldn't have. And in fact, it's someone who is, was so close to me that it's an absolute betrayal of the emotion we had before, the love that we had before as a father and daughter. I've been hating him for so long and the entire basis of that hate didn't actually happen. You know, I think of this in relation to my parents. Okay. To, to get a little personal on this, I was not super close with my dad when my parents divorced, okay? Um, they split up when I was in, I guess it was elementary school. Eventually, they both got remarried. Well, uh, my, my uh, sister and I were both in middle school, and, and not to each other, obviously. And things worked <laughs> out for the best in the end, and I became a lot closer to my dad, especially you know, in the years after I actually moved back in with him you know, in, in late high school and onward and whatnot. So, great relationship now, but weren't really close at the time. And because we didn't spend a lot of time with him, and we didn't have much in the way of early visitation with him, because we just didn't know how to relate to each other initially. In fact, he had to ask for advice, you know, on, you know, what can we talk about? How do I get Nathan and Aaron, the kids, to want to spend time with me? That kind of thing. The only side that I ever heard at the time of that divorce was what my mom believed about it. And her belief... And I have no idea what was true or not, but her belief was that he was cheating on her. And that was what, in part, drove them apart, and then he left. I later got a chance to talk about, or to talk to him about it in just a random conversation of all things. I think it was in the car as we were driving to friggin' Burger King or something. So, <laughs> heartfelt moment plus diarrhea. <laughs> but... But I had a chance to have the conversation with him, and he talked about how, you know, that there's a what's perceived and what's real... Sometimes the perception matters more, and that in being close friends with the, the person that he was assumed to have cheated with, he said that he never did, but in being so close, the perception was what mattered more than anything else, etc., etc. But it, it gave me a very different view of him and that situation because I had grown up with this, well, it was all his fault. They didn't just grow apart. It wasn't that there was perception issues on either side. He had actually done something wrong, and that was the killer issue. And then doubt entered, and the idea of looking at it and seeing the different perspectives, not knowing what's true and being able to sort of move past that, made a, a big difference. It, it, it changed the way I looked at that whole situation and 
opened up, I think, avenues of conversation and avenues of looking at things that I hadn't really considered before. It's a major thing when you have something that for years was your primary reason of having a black mark on somebody's record that you just can't let go of turns out to possibly, and in Jin's case, actually, for sure, not have been true in the first place. Because there's all that lost time and all that wasted energy getting worked up over something that may or may not actually have even been the case. So seeing that really makes that particular scene in Rogue One really stand out to me and why. I mean, she would fall to her knees. She'd be crying. They would have to sort of push her to get her out of there when everything's going down and the Death Star is fired, you know? To me, that that scene in here did a great job of opening that up in a way that Catalyst and the beginning of Rogue One and the Rogue One novelizations weren't able to pull off probably just because he didn't get to spend as much time with the Jin character uh, at that particular age. But that, to me, was a major Stover effect, I gotta say. Yeah, I think one of the cool moments in this book that really took me by surprise was when we find out what happened to the Ponta One. Uh, you know, they're they're in the process of dashing out of the system. The Imperials have set a trap, uh, and they're barely getting out, and Jin's in the shuttle... And the actual craft is following him with uh, uh, the Ponta family and their Hatter and his mom. And when she jumps, you know, she, she kind of feels the bucking of an explosion. And it, she learns later that it was their ship that, that covered her escape, basically. They took the blast that would have killed her and they were wiped out. And, I mean, that moment, like the way it happened, it was just, you know, it, you kind of knew when you're reading it that you didn't think they got out. And then when you find out, you're just like, oh man, like that was a very despairful moment for me reading it for Jen, because I'm like, you know, she'd finally found a family. You know, these were people that were accepting of her. They genuinely cared for her and loved her. And now they're gone. Like that, I think was probably the bleakest moment for me reading the book, even more so than when uh, Saw and them had abandoned her because she had already kind of given up hope and then refound hope and then lost it all again. Like that was, that was a terrible moment, man. Well, and she, and she got that hope back briefly too. It was like a, yeah. a double gut punch. Cause then there's a point where they're calling for, you know, Ponta, Ponta, mm-hmm. please report to the, or, or whatever it was where she saw the name Ponta saying report to the dock or whatever, just briefly on the screen and wasn't able to catch a first name. And mm-hmm. she thinks one or more of them survived, gets down there and, oh, they were just asking for you. Cause that's the alias you used. That to me was probably even the, the heaviest punch because the first time you're like, oh man, mm-hmm. I guess they didn't make it. But then even as a reader, you're like, oh, they maybe did. But as she's heading there, you've got that sinking, oh, she's going to find out they're just calling her. Oh, crap. Oh, crap. Oh, that's what it was. It's, mm-hmm. That's a gut punch. Yeah, and I like the fact that, that you know, Galen, he's super smart. You know, super duper smart. And even uh, Lyra is smart at what she does. You know, and Jin has that same scientific ability, you know, like she's able to work with numbers and stuff. So we watch her, she's making the codes and stuff, hacking codes and doing all that kind of stuff. And then we get to that point where she starts working for the, uh, the Imperial governor or, or Admiral or whatever, making the, uh, forged poker chips. Like once she was working for that lady, I'm like, Oh, this cannot end well. You know, like 
I found that when they spring the trap at the end with blue and everything, I thought that that was probably one of the coolest betrayals, aside from the fact that when she loses the Ponta family, I felt like that was probably the only other heart-sinking, despairful moment, you know, because when, when it comes down, like, you know, Blue, the leader of that cell, has no clue that she's actually working for the Empire at that moment. And when they break it down, like, oh, the way Blue screams traitor and stuff, and, and Jin's like, I tried to tell you, her eyes moved to Blue, you didn't try hard, Blue snarled. Like, I, there's just something about that moment. And then when we get to the very end, and she goes, Jin stared at the metal floor, her eyes stinging. She could tell that Blue was watching her, and she dared to look up at the Devorian over at Shawburn. They had accepted her. They had wanted her to be a part of their movement, their cause. They had put their hope in her hands, and she had thrown it away. For nothing. In the end, she hadn't helped Blue, or the cause, or even herself. She had only wanted to escape this life, and now she was being crushed by it. If I was going to go out like this anyway, Jin thought as the troopers led her to the brig, it should have been for more than nothing. And the fact that it was for nothing, like, that was, I don't even know how to describe the despair I felt for. I was just like, holy crap, like this poor kid. You think about it, like, she's like, what, five, six, maybe eight when her mom dies in front of her. Her dad gets taken from her. She's raised basically by a, a psychopath terrorist. And then, you know, like everything she's done. And then she gets to that point and, and she's just trying to escape this life. And it throws her into the deepest pit of despair. And that's from that moment on is when we get back into everything with the prison. And at that point, because of what you've had in the flashbacks, you know about how despairful it gets and stuff. So I kind of go back and forth in the want of having all that in the linear motion of having all those little things in the end. Because I get that when we get to that point where she realizes it's all for nothing, you know how bad it gets for her. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, man, I kind of wish I would have just got in that linear fashion and just saw how much worse it got. Because, I mean, you could tell from her point of view, she she screwed up and she knows it. Yeah, that was definitely one of those moments where you're like, oh, God. Like, you knew at some point she had to get arrested. It was just a question of when. And when she started working for the bad guys, you know, as Hamlet would say, you know, it is not nor it cannot come to good. But that said... Interestingly, it seems as though this book really plays up. Th there's a morality and an ethics theme in this book, but it's not the, the usual one. It's sort of this, you know what? The bad guys, if you screw them over, if you wrong them, they probably want to crush you. Unless it turns out that you've got a useful skill, perhaps even the one you used against them, then they'll use you as long as they can and then dispose of you when the time is right. And it's that not seeing that you'll eventually be disposed of that winds up getting the heroes into trouble and in this case Jin with with uh, the empire the two different imperials plus the the casino owner guy but then you also of course have what you mentioned before about the whole thing morality wise of you know are the rebels any better than the empire in relation to the the, the struggle and the damage caused during the con the the conflict between both sides upon those who are essentially caught in the middle. I mean, you think back to the American Revolution and the statistic that's usually thrown around, and I don't think this is exactly accurate, it's more of an estimate, is that basically you had about a third who were for the Revolution, a third who were Tories, who were for remaining with Britain, and another third just caught in the middle, who, who looked at either side 
and saw, you know, damage being done in essence. I thought that the, the whole idea of the, the morality plays when they're used, uh, even like, you know, near the end when it comes down to her freeing slaves, that, that eventually you get these morality aspects of it, but not in the not in the usual ways, in ways that sort of make you stop and think more than anything else. But you're right, from the standpoint of what she went through, I mean, this is probably the most battered character that we've seen within the new story group canon. Um, there are few, if any, characters who had as hellish, as screwed up, as dysfunctional of a childhood and young adulthood as Jin Erso. To the point where it's kind of funny in that you look at Jin and you think, wow, I wonder if in many ways she basically had it worse than Anakin did. Because Anakin was a slave, but he was still with his mom, and then he joined the Jedi, you know? Uh, and he was a favorite slave of, of Watto, so he had things going for him there where he wasn't necessarily abused. He just, you know, was kind of screwed with at times. It, it makes you wonder, because this is some seriously dark stuff that she winds up going through. This is probably, I would say it's probably one of the darkest books also of story group canon. Not just one of the ones that has, has the most Stover effect on a film, but also pretty crazy dark. But it has to. Right, if the idea is this is all leading up to where Jin is at the beginning of Rogue One, she's not in a good place. And she wasn't in a good place in the opening of Rogue One in the past segment when we leave there because now she's having to go off with Saw. Yeah, it just this is definitely one that I would highly recommend to anybody who really wants that Stover effect and wants to get a greater appreciation for this character. I would especially even say if you weren't a big fan of Rogue One, if you found it or the characters and characterization perhaps lacking. I would say try this book out. I'm not sure about Catalyst, because if you didn't really care for Rogue One as much, you're not going to care as much for Krennic and, er and uh, Galen or so. So you may not be able to get into Catalyst. I think that for the most part, most fans, even the ones disappointed with Rogue One, could probably get into this book. And in doing so, maybe have a Stover effect that would help them enjoy Rogue One more. And that's a pretty high compliment to pay to what is ostensibly, supposedly, a book that's not actually aimed at adult fans. When it will be adult fans, in many cases, getting that effect out of reading it. Uh, Revis did a fantastic job. And you mentioned the audiobook. Now, am I understanding correctly, the audiobook this time was read by a woman, right? This was not read by a man, which yep. would make sense. Yep, it was cool. a lady, and uh, let me see here. It is by Rebecca Soler. And she did a very good job. There were there were moments where she sounded like Jin. Like, like, you know, when they had that moment where she gets captured, in fact, the way that, that she says it, like, you hear Jin's voice, but... It's uh, her as well, Admiral Rockland had said in an irritated voice, flicking her hand at Jin. Hurry up. I did what you said, Jin said, whirling around to face the Admiral. She was aware and ashamed of the plea in her voice, of the way the crew of the XO stood witness to her treachery. Do you think that protects you, Admiral Rockland said, feigning confusion. Don't be stupid, girl. You're a petty criminal at best. We have no further need of you. And besides, she added with a shrug, if I do, I know exactly where I'll be able to find you. As Jin stood there in shock, the stormtroopers finally clasped one of her wrists in a cuff. In one of the Emperor's glorious labor cramps, the Admiral finished. Blind panic surged in Jin as the stormtrooper reached for her other wrist. She swung around wildly, slamming her fist painfully into his helmet. Come peacefully, the stormtrooper ordered. Like hell I will, Jin snarled. And, like, you get the sense, like, in that moment, it was her wake-up. Like, up until that moment, she's kind of like, 
I don't really care for them both, but I find myself pitted from one side to the other. But in that moment, she realizes exactly what the Empire will do. They will say and do whatever they need to just to get what they want. And when they're done, they'll throw you away. And it's not until it happens to her. Like, she's heard this and seen it happen to other people. But until it happens to her, it's the one thing that wakes her up, which was kind of cool. Yeah, it's that idea. You'd almost want to say that that's her moment that helps with her radicalization. Why, to use a political term, to use a modern term, uh, that would drive her into the rebel camp. But in essence, she was radicalized early on being raised by Saw. But the target of that radicalization uh, goes from being, it could be the Empire, or just screw it, pay me, and I'll use my skills against whomever, regardless of the law, to being specifically uh, against the Empire. Though... You know, this whole thing, this whole thing and, and the backstory and everything, I mean, a lot of it could have been avoided. If only they'd imprisoned Michael Schofield in the same places <laughs> as Liana Halleck, and then they could have found their way out with some laser-etched uh, tattoos. But apparently not. <laughs> apparently not. Wouldn't Michael Schofield, I'm sure, was probably in the Star Wars universe. If he was in there, he'd be a Sith, and, and his, his Sith tattoos form like the network of of sewers and rooms and pipes in some kind of Coruscant spire. But that... <laughs> is completely deviating from the point. Any other things to hit for Rebel Rising? I think for me, the bulk of what we wanted, what I wanted to look at, uh, we've hit. Yeah, I think uh, there was one other thing, but it's eluding me at this moment. I'm like, oh, what was it? It was just there. Oh, it's gone. Yeah, I, I, I really, I found the book was an enjoyable book. Uh, like you had said, it, it's, it's tough to put it in where you would put it in the top 10 but i'm in the same boat like i, I feel like it's definitely one of the stronger books uh the new canon stories are definitely more character studies as we've said before uh this one really is served oh i never remember what it was leon halleck when we get to that moment where the general in the rebels uses her name and says or would they be really worried if they knew you were Jin Erso? Like, at that moment in the book, that is huge, because that's the first time anyone put together that she is Jin Erso and said it. Like, there were moments where people had figured it out, like, with Saw, like, the too close they know. But that was the first time that someone said it out loud, which I thought was kind of cool, because when that moment happens, there's kind of like this sinking feeling for her, like, ah, crap. <laughs> and, and, you know, it sends her on a mission that winds up with her being doomed in the end. But it gives her a chance to actually make an impact, and it saves her from a much longer prison term. So in essence, for once, somebody figuring out that she's Jen Erso is not only good for the galaxy, it's good for her. In, at least in the short run. Or you could say the long run, if it's all about what impact she's able to leave. Because if they hadn't figured it out, if she'd been able to keep that secret as she did in prison for so long, then she would have still been languishing there and... You know, who knows what happens as far as the Death Star plans go, at least in this continuity. Maybe they would have had to have found a, a canonical version of Kyle Katarn or uh, <laughs> any number of other characters, Bria Theron and so forth, to, to send after them. Yeah. But that, again, is a bit of a digression. <laughs> no, it was a good story overall. Uh, I, I look forward to more of these type of young adult books. It's it's interesting because the one other thing I want to talk about is I've been listening to more audiobooks, and I find that when I listen to the audiobook and I never crack open the physical copy of the book, I find that I'm retaining less of the story than when I'm actually looking at the words and reading along. Like, Especially characters. Like, if I'm not seeing how their names are spelled, like Hatter, I thought Hatter was Hatter. Like, I didn't realize it was two Ds. Like, for the longest time, I thought it was Hatter. Like, he's Mad Hatter, because that's just the way that was always said. And so, 
there's a lot of that that I'm finding in the new canon books. I'm doing more audiobook, and I'm finding because of that, a lot of the stories aren't sticking with me the way they used to. And I'm like, man, this has got to be the way I'm digesting these because I have I've made a big shift to audiobook since canon has broke away from legends and I have having a heck of a time remembering some of the stuff when I have literally just finished the book this week. It's like, wait, what was the name of, of so-and-so like I'm going back and I'm trying to find their names and like, yeah, it's just, it's brutal, man. I miss the, the, the character dramatists at the beginning. Like we need those back in the books and in the audio books. So I can like check out these names and get that refresher because you know, I don't think Delray or, or Disney Press wants to be making books that people forget about. And I don't think it's that the, the story is forgettable. I just think sometimes it's a matter of how we're digesting them. Because when I'm reading the physical copy, I find I set the book down a lot to think about what I've read. And so I get through the book a lot. It takes me longer to get through the book than when I'm listening to the audiobook. But at the same time, the audiobook, I get to the same moments where I would have set the book down. And next thing I know, I'm like, by the time I get done with that thought that I had set the book down for, I'm like, oh, wait, I'm three chapters ahead. I got to skip back to where I was because I stopped listening because I started pondering crap. See, for me, whether it's a physical book or an ebook, like on the Kindle, I do tend to retain more in those cases than for things that I'm not actively having to physically engage with, right? So, like, if whether I'm listening to an audiobook or I'm watching a movie, but I'm at home, so I'm doing other stuff while they're on because I don't have to actually hold the book in front of me and actively be reading, I'll wind up having to constantly rewind to hear whatever it was that I missed. Unless whatever it is that I'm also doing is so mind-numbingly non-engaging that I'm able to actually focus on it. Like, I can listen to something while I'm driving. I can listen to something while I'm mowing, and in those cases, I retain it all. Um, but like, for instance, I just picked up uh, Power Rangers that came out today, which was surprisingly good, actually. Finally got a chance to see that. And I, there was one scene where I know I had to rewind it like five times because I, would, I missed it the first time, rewound it to catch it the second time and got distracted by something else again. And it <laughs> happened repeatedly until I finally was like, oh, and that's what I rewound it for? Crap. And, you know, moved it on. I will say, though, that there are studies out there that show that the from print to ebook form, particularly e-ink pages especially, that the studies apparently show that people retain less from ebooks than from physical books. For me, it's the opposite huh. because the ebooks help me actually retain my place, and I'm able to read more in longer chunks, so it's all processing at once. So in my particular case ebook is the way to go for me if I want to be able to retain it because I'm physically engaging with it and it's giving me those longer sessions and whatnot because, you know, it's got a built-in light so I can read at night and whatnot in long, hours-long sessions to yeah. be able to handle it. Uh, but it goes, you know, if you go from there to regular print and then up into something I'm not actively engaging with, then yeah, yeah, you wind up with those same types of things, which is actually, you know, that's something that we deal with with my students. I mean, a lot of the content that they get with our online classes is video-based. So there's a lot of, okay, let's stop and answer some questions based on it. Let's stop and see if you recall these things. Let's stop in this. Or, hey, here's a transcript to go with it if you're having trouble staying with it. But it, I think that's always going to be thing. There's that, that active physical engagement and not um, is always going to be, be an issue, I think. But, man, audiobooks are really convenient if you don't have the time to actually sit down and do that physical engagement but i'm not sure i don't know i'm not sure that reading text on a page or a screen is ever going to go away thankfully otherwise we'll all be getting confused and skipping stuff <laughs> the last thing i would say the one 
surprising thing that came up in Rogue One that has not been addressed as far as I'm aware of, what in the hell is a Death Trooper? I mean, all I really see are Shadow Troopers at this point that talk in a random scrambled code. I I keep waiting for something to give me the detail there that we're missing. <laughs> well, we do have the, uh, the visual guy that told us that they're encased in special Stormtrooper armor, that they are were created to defend the most important operations and operatives in the Imperial military hierarchy, recruited by Imperial intelligence. They are protection squadrons of bodyguards. They're tied into the uh, Tarkin Initiative specifically. And the name comes from a rumored project from the Advanced Weapons Research Division that was designed to animate necrotic flesh. And these guys weren't, but the name wound up sticking and gave them a macabre reputation among the Imperial ranks. And the black armor just enhanced that as well. But I think other than the Rogue One Ultimate Visual Guide, we really haven't gotten much in the way of a... Of actual depth on the Death Troopers. Wouldn't it be interesting, though, to see Death Troopers show up a bit more in Rebels and perhaps get some some background? Maybe even wind up finding that we're following a character who perhaps becomes a Death Trooper. Ooh. Who knows? Or oh, maybe those, man. We'll find out that it turns out that... Uh, that uh, the uh, the acting coach hired for Han Solo as a Death Trooper. <laughs> well, I was thinking, like, what if it's something along the chip line? Like, what if, what if, if uh, Fulcran, Mister Callus himself, gets recaptured by the Empire and they end up lobotomizing him and making him a Death Trooper? Like, because I kept I kept waiting for something like that. Like, like I remember hearing about that guy and stuff, but I'm like, man, all I'm seeing are just glorified Shadow Troopers. I'm not seeing anything special about these guys. Ah, Callus. Callus, Callus. He's the best at what he does, but what he does isn't very nice, bub. Oh, wait, sorry. That's <laughs> that, That's the wrong guy with the facial hair. Anyway, um, yeah. I, I think, think we're good. I think we are, too. <laughs> I think I think uh, if you have any doubts about this book, you should check it out. Uh, if you have no interest in Jyn Erso or no interest in Rogue One, go ahead and ignore it. Uh, I don't think it's going to affect you one way or the other. It, it's, a, it's a good place to be in with a book like this. You get a nice big book in the young adult era, so you can't go wrong with that. Anything else from you before we wrap out, Nate? No. No, I think I'm... Uh... I think I'm good, although maybe we should say, he said that when it came to the podcast, it was time to finish. And so she did. Or, you know, something like that. But... Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is literally the best way to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars or Legends questions, or if you just have a comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. And now lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. 
Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't cross the odds that so she did will become one of our new catchphrases. So it did. What are the odds that it'll be another month before we get the next episode up? I'm thinking not so not so bad. I think I think we're good, right? We're doing legacy next, aren't we? <laughs> yeah! Yeah, someday. It's coming! It's coming soon! <laughs> we need to do some feedback soon, because we got some some feedback that's been sitting here for a while. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about feedback. So yeah, we so can do, we'll... leg- do legacy and then do a feedback. That sounds like a plan. We've got a plan, folks! We've got a plan! <laughs> <laughs>